Well, the theme that we're working on, have been for several weeks, is the best summer ever. And in honor of that, next week, Nancy Pollard is going to do the Charleston for us during that musical set. And so thank you, Nancy, for volunteering to do that. So I won't put you on the spot. If you would like to follow along this morning uh, in, your, in your scripture, it's 1 John chapter 2, chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. So that's what we, we will be referring to this morning. And today we're looking at answers to important questions. Answers to important questions. You know, as we've looked at our summer theme, we've talked a good bit about the, how the summer of 2020 looks different. Would you say it looks a little different this year? Amen? Amen, I think so. But when we think back to summers that we would call previously the best summers ever, the summers and the activities, our minds go back to the past, and we think about those experiences we have. We think about trips, family vacations. We think about school trips that sometime happened right after school was out. We think about uh, church trips or adventures, other adventures with our family, swimming, sleeping later, staying up later, all those kinds of things. Some of you think back and you think, well, Bill, what I remember was having to go to work all summer because Daddy said I had to get up. Uh, But in all of those memories, our friends are usually included, aren't they? So we have a lot of memories about our friends. So think with me for just a moment. Do you have favorite stories that you tell about a friend or friends that you've had? Do things come to mind? For some of you, it'll take a little longer. For some of you, you'll remember immediately. But they're very vivid, aren't they? These are stories that come up again and again from our past, and they always seem to bring a smile or a laugh when we think about them. Uh, and particularly at the moment they happened. Sometimes we're smiling even though they may not have turned out the way we would have liked. Well, you know, I'm sure we've all got those. My wife Shasta, she, she tells about being in a golf cart when she was in the third grade. This girl that was her friend who was also in third grade, had, her daddy had a golf cart, and they took off in the golf cart. And at some point, she hit a bump and swerved, and Shasta was thrown out of the golf cart. And in all that, the golf cart ran over both legs. And so she's trying to figure out what to do next. Well, the, the girl turned around and came back, came back to help her and ran over her legs again. And so you laughed too, and you weren't even there. Every time she has to tell that story, she gets a big smile on her face and she starts to laugh. Because memories are like that. Memories recall and cause us to think back fondly. As I said, even with some pain involved. So here we are with the Apostle John in, first, in this first epistle. And you've got to imagine that he had a lot of fond memories of those three years of being with Jesus. Up close and personal with Jesus. Wow. You know, a few years ago, uh, Shasta and I had the privilege of going to Israel. And we spent, some, we spent a week there. We did a mission trip piece, and then we got to, uh, got to go to a, bunch, a lot of the sites that we all know from Scripture. And all week long, you're kind of pinching yourself. Jesus walked here. Now, of course, it's probably 15 or 20 feet of sediment that had, or rocks or buildings that had been taken down. But, I mean, you're still walking in the area where our Savior walked. And it just... 
it just fascinates your imagination the whole time you're there. Well, now imagine John walked with him for three years. So having firsthand experiences with Jesus made these stories even more powerful. Because by now he's in his 80s and he's writing this and he's been ministering to people and he's writing these letters and he's remembering those experiences. So when he's writing it, he has a real intense awareness of Jesus and his thoughts. So just consider that this morning as we look at this passage together. We're going to look at the first two verses, 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, he will have one, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In that, you can immediately see a caring, loving spirit that wants the best for us. And it's written to encourage believers not to sin. Now, as Chad mentioned last week, we can't, and, and we're reminded in these passages, we're never going to be sinless. I mean, I probably committed three sins just from getting from that door up here on the platform this morning without even realizing. I mean, we are just going to sin, aren't we? But we're encouraged to try to sin less. It's an active thing on our part, a conscious thing, because we miss so, other, so many other mistakes we made, don't we? Jesus, the one who went to the cross to be a sacrifice for us, he suffered for us, willing to, willing to lay down his life for us, that same Jesus is still advocating for us today, right now, in heaven with his Father. Paul describes Jesus in Romans 8.34 as the one who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also, is also interceding for us. Because we've aligned ourselves with Jesus, he acknowledges us before God. He's still covering us and protecting us from the wrath of God. We deserve judgment, but he is interceding all the time for us as our advocate. Now, one important question is how can I truly know that I know God? I don't know if you've ever dealt with that one. Answering this question is one of the major purposes of 1 John. In fact, it may be the primary purpose of 1 John is how can I truly know that I know God? Previously, John is writing of the historical groundings of the Christian faith and discussing the reality of sin in Christians. Now he speaks specifically as to how a Christian can truly know he is born again or in his language, how we can know that we know God. So first, there's a moral test. That's the test of righteousness. The point here is that the person who knows God will lead an increasingly righteous life because God is righteous. We give evidence by our obedience, which is the external, visible evidence of our salvation. This obedience that we are a part of, it's not some rote, mechanical thing. It's an internal, loving submission to God that shows up in outward obedience because joy is found in doing the will of God. And as we, particularly as we get older, we learn those lessons over and over again. So we come to understand that the joy we find really is found in, the do, in doing the will of God. 
It doesn't mean we're sinless. As John's already said in chapter 1, if we claim to be sinless, we're lying. It simply means that following God will change us and obedience will produce righteousness in us because God is righteousness. If, if we're not bothered or concerned or distressed or dissatisfied with sin in our lives, then the indications are that we are not children of God. That's the moral test that we see in these verses. In verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3 of, of this chapter, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. That's how the NIV transla uh, translates it. The Christian Standard Version translates it, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. You'll remember a number of false teachings and a number of false groups had arisen since Jesus' resurrection. And one of those groups that, that Chad mentioned previously were the Gnostics. They believed that Jesus wasn't really God's son because matter was evil and spirit was good. Now think about that. Matter was evil and spirit was good. So because God was good, he was spirit, he was good. He could not have created this material world because it's evil. And since spirit and matter could not intermingle, you couldn't put those two together, their teaching, their thinking, their belief system said Christ and God could not have united in the person of Jesus. Even their name, which is the Greek word for knowledge, was with the idea that they had special insight and into the secret truths of life. So one of the things that we understand John was addressing here is that their culture and ours need to be reminded and understand that the idea of knowledge comes like this. John's kind of saying it in this paraphrase. So you want to talk about knowledge? Okay. If you know God, we will see righteousness in you. In other words, you will obey his commands. That's not what the Gnostics were teaching. But what have we always done? What have, has mankind always done? Now, the Greeks had an unlimited, almost an unlimited view and confidence in human reason. And then that continued on for centuries, so, so much that in the 18th century in England and in Europe, uh, in the 18th century, this was also evident. So for centuries, man has believed that there was a process of reasoning to believe God. You can come to arrive at God by just this process of reasoning. So our thinking about God has almost been, or often been, more like an approach to mathematics. This A plus B equals C, or X plus Y equals Z. So while this could fill your mind up, it doesn't touch the heart or stir the emotions. If I give you a view of the Christian life that's do this, do this, do this, and you try to process it, it's almost like trying to follow a mathematical formula. So it doesn't fill the need because you and I are emotional beings. We have other needs. So later there's a shift from mystery or to mystery and to Eastern religions and it was all about the emotional experience. Some of us have lived through that cultural shift where it's all about the emotions, and we've seen that happen in our world around us. But the problem with that is there's nothing to stir your mind or your intellect. And while we are emotional people, we are also intellectual people. We've got both of these things going on. And the problem is with all of this is that it doesn't last. It's not either or, it's both. God is a God of mystery. 
God is a God of process. And all of that culminates in this amazing walk that we can be on as we move towards our eternity and our home with Jesus. So mankind was left with rationalism, our short-lived emotional experience, and if they, if they wanted to know God, that is. But God's knowledge, or John's knowledge of God is personal and practical, which means it's also satisfying. I mean, he walked with Jesus. He had a very practical experience with Jesus, and his faith grew in a practical way, but it also satisfied the deep needs of his life and heart. And many of us have discovered that, haven't we? That the satisfaction we find in Jesus comes both, both directions, comes with the whole package. Not because of an idea or a thing, but because of a person. And that person, Jesus, moves us to change our contact, our conduct, excuse me. We're on a journey that leads us to life change. That's what my experience since salvation and encountering Jesus has always been about, about life change and about how God was changing me as I went from year, day to day and year to year. The biblical ideas had been formed and written long before John, though. In the Old Testament, we find Jeremiah speaking about it in his book in chapter 31, verse 33, where he says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then at the end of the next verse, verse 34, he follows with, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Knowing God comes with indications of righteousness, for God is righteousness. John's point is that this is the first test that we can know him. So our questions are at this point, how do you know him? How do you know that you know him? And John's answer is that you know him when you come in contact with a personality. Again, not a process or a mystery, but a personality that changes your personality and leads you to live a righteous life. Another question is, why is the righteous life a proof that we know God? Why does that even matter? Because a righteous life is not natural to sinful man. We aren't just going to get to be righteous, are we? I've lived in my skin a long time. I know what I'm, in, uh, what I'm capable of, and I guarantee you there's not much righteousness without an encounter with Jesus. So our obeying him is the, the proof for our lives that a divine supernatural work has taken place. And Paul says, refers to that in Philippians 2 verse 13 when he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's not because I have the power to do it on my own. It's because of God and his will to work it in my life. To solidify the test, John introduces two types of men. So in verse 4 and 5, he talks about these guys. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. On one hand, we have the man who claims to know God, but doesn't keep his commandments. John calls him a liar. Now, that's a harsh word. We didn't use that word when I was growing up. You don't call people liars, do you? Well, apparently there are liars in the world. And John says the man who says he knows God but doesn't keep his commands is not, oh, a negative 
person is not, ooh, a bad person. He is a liar, according to John. He claims one thing and lives out something else, and the quote is, the truth is not in him. The truth is not in him. On the other hand, there's the man who obeys God out of a real love for him. John points to this as evidence of a life changed. They desire above all to walk in the way that Jesus walked so that even when they sin, they're quick to repent and turn to Christ. We are motivated if we're that person. We are moved. We are pulled towards wanting to change what is wrong. That, sir, that person seeks to please God. So in the last part of verse 5 and, and verse 6, it says, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked, as Jesus did. The false teachers of the day were claiming that conduct wasn't important. So John's addressing that. Because how we act matters. How we act really does matter. This is a call to show, John, show Jesus in our conduct, isn't it? To walk as Christ lived is to, li- is to live not by rules, but by example. We're to follow him to be his disciple. So it's a discipleship that is personal. It's a personal discipleship. It can't be passed off to someone else. We find our identity and our purpose in Christ. Your parents, as righteous a life as they may have lived, couldn't give you this. You had to find it yourself. Mine couldn't give it to me. I had to find it myself. I had to will, be willing to give my will over to him. So it's personal. But this discipleship that we talk about is also active. Christ was active. Following Christ is active. If we're inactive, if we're inactive, we will be left behind. Say that again. If we're inactive, we will be left behind. The true follower of Jesus is not just a talker, but a doer. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So whatever we find in God's word, we're to do that. We're admonished to do what the Bible tells us to do. And so this discipleship is personal, it's active, and it's costly. Jesus walked a path that led to a cross and crucifixion before it led to glory. We must be willing to die to self and take up the cross and follow him. That's the test of righteousness. Second test is love. That's the social test. John had previously written in his gospel in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where he wrote that Jesus was speaking to his disciples when he said, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the mark of the Christian. You know the the chorus we used to sing, we are one in the bond of love, and um, 14 other ones that, that sing about love. Love's very vital. If you open a hymnal, we've been singing about love all the way from the beginning because love is an absolute part of our evidence to the world that we are different. This is how the world knows us. And it's by love that Christians can know that they are Christians. And what does that mean, Bill? Well, a Christian knows that they are made alive by Christ when they find themselves loving others 
that Christ died for. So you know that love is going on in your life because you have the ability to love someone else that doesn't seem very lovely. It's not just to love God. We're also called to love others. And we see that law of love in verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have, have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now this word beloved literally means dear friends. John uses the term again and again. It's a reminder that Christians are beloved because God loves us. Therefore, we can love. John goes straight to the heart of the matter. If a person knows God, he will keep God's commandments. And if he, and if he keeps God's commandments, he will love others because he follows Christ's teachings. So there's some evidence. Now, it's an old commandment. Love is an old commandment. It, we first see it in God's Word in Leviticus 19, 18. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the question is, why is it important that we see command, they command to love one another as a commandment from the beginning? And what does, that, what does doing so show us about the nature of God? Well, it reminds us that God was the same yesterday and today and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. This is nothing new. So when he first gathered his people and tried to reshape them to be his followers, he was talking about loving each other and, and the ones around us. So it's not a new thing. Those he is writing to, as well as us today, have come to recognize that truth. We are just not that crazy about hearing it, are we? Because when I turn on the television and I see some of the things I see, I'm just not really excited about loving what I see. And then dadgummit, here's God's word reminding him, reminding me that I have to love stuff that really Makes me want to turn it off. Hey, have you been challenged by that lately? Probably so. And yet we are, we are called to love. Not to agree with, not to even understand all the time, but to love. This is the verse John, Jesus referred to when he was asked what was the first and greatest commandment. He said that the first, or the, he said the greatest commandment, and he referenced Deuteronomy, Chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. But the second, he said, was the one found in Leviticus 19, 18 that said, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So love is an old commandment, isn't it? But love is also a new commandment. So the question is, how is the command to love a new commandment? In Jesus... Love became, a new, became new in how far it reached. This was a whole new standard for love. You remember God's people saw love in a kind of limited way. They loved their families, and they even loved their nation. They understood that. But they were closed to the world around them. And the Orthodox Jew did not love the sinner. 
They wanted to put separation between themselves and the sinner. A sinner was seen as someone God even wanted to destroy. So the, peop- the children of Israel said, mm, we don't want to get too close because it'll rub off on us. And Gentiles, all of us, and people who were, all the people who aren't Jews, the Gentiles, were created by God for hell. That's basically what the Jewish people and their attitude said. We really weren't important. But Jesus comes along And we acknowledge and understand that he's the friend of sinners. And when he spoke and listened to even women, a lot of hands went to their mouths. He's the one that extended salvation to Gentiles. You and I can find him for eternity because he extended salvation to us. And when he left his disciples, he left them with this challenge to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all nations. They were to be witnesses in Acts 1, 8 in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The command to love was new because Jesus showed us love in a fresh new way. He expanded the love as the people of his day understood it. He raised love to a higher standard for the church and he commanded his disciples to imitate his love. So in Jesus, love became new in how far it reached and in Jesus, love became new in how far it would go. When we look at the cross, we can see the extent to which God was willing to go. It's a far greater degree than any he had shown before. That the Son of God came to us in human form, died on a cross, took on the sin of the entire human race in order to carry the punishment of our sin and even to be alienated for a time from God the Father to the point, you'll remember, that in agony, hanging on the cross, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Love reaches a whole new level in Christ. So we see it in how far it reached, how far it would go, and then in Jesus, love is made new because it permeates us. It changes us. True love is is true righteousness. It's, It's now seen not only in Jesus, but also in everyone who becomes alive in him, which didn't happen under the Old Testament system. You and I became changed forever with our encounter with Jesus. Instead of having to go kill a bull or a lamb, Remember that stuff? We don't have to deal with that. Our sanctuary would smell a lot different if we were still dealing with that. Sacrifice has been made for us. We see a life of love through this word in 9, 10, and 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. John says the darkness is passing away. The light is shining. However, the darkness is not completely gone and the light is not seen everywhere and in everyone as we look around. I believe we could all say amen to that. We don't actually see light in everybody's life. How can John be so definite in this statement? 
that if you hate your brother, you live in darkness. Well, he gives us three things to look at. Claims made without love. First person claims to be in the light, but hates his brother. John says, this guy is still in the darkness. In some ways, it's like having a light bulb. You take the light bulb and you screw it into the lamp, but you don't bother to turn the lamp on. You have access to electricity. You have the ability to turn the light on, but you don't flip the switch. You don't access the source. And so you're still in the dark. Because love matters. We need to be pulled out of the darkness. Because love comes out of light. In the second person, you see light in his, in his life because he loves his brother. This light keeps him from stumbling. This lamp is turned on, and he has light as he goes forward. He is in the light, and his life is different. And then third, hate leads to darkness. When you're in the darkness, it's easier to hate your brother. Evidence is that if you're in the darkness, or if you hate your brother, you're going to be in the darkness. You're walking in the darkness. Everything you do is in the darkness. And then as you continue on this journey in the dark, there's no clear goal. The other night, I went from one spot to another in my house in the dark. I banged my little toe. It hurt really bad. If I had turned on the light, I probably wouldn't have done that. How often do we do that? We're headed somewhere in the darkness. Or, the, or how often are people you encounter walking around in the darkness stubbing their toe because they won't turn on the light? Even though there's light available, people continue to walk in the darkness. People are blind because they do not see God's goal in the light of Jesus. There's no hope for people in the dark except in finding Jesus. And once they find Jesus, you're able to have sight. You get sight for blindness. You get a guide to the path of righteousness. But without the light of Jesus, you're going to stumble around in the dark. People in the dark are often out of fellowship with, with God, this God of light. They're blind. They don't know where they're going. And you know, walking around the darkness never ends well. It just never does. So the final question, what will happen if those who claim the life of Christ actually love one another? What do you think is the answer to that question? Well, I think our walk, our life will make a difference where we go because when we love, we push back the darkness. Even though we may feel that we're going through a very dark time right now, we also know there's a lot of light. One of the things I've thought about our theme of best summer ever through these weeks is that we have an opportunity to pull back just a little bit and reconsider and consider what the most important things are. And if you and I are in, who are in the Christian life take time to consider what's really important, where will we be drawn? We'll be drawn to the Father. We'll be drawn to the truths of his word. We'll be drawn out of 
the darkness, out of the shadows, into this light that's available. As I said yes earlier and we were praying, whatever, um, whatever challenge you're encountering right now, there is light available. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a result that's exactly like we would have made it, but we know that God's taking care of us and he's going to provide for us and there will be light for us. There will be an answer. There will be a healing. There will be a reward. We can trust him. Pray with me. Father, we are reminded in your word of how great the life that's available to us is. And that you promised to be consistent with us. You've promised to be ever mindful, always caring, never leaving us to be alone. So this morning, thank you for John's words, or the words of you through John's book, as we've looked at how much love matters, how our conduct matters, how we are not to ever give up because we have so much that is promised to us. We are thankful. And I pray that you will speak to us in these moments as well as we go forward through this next week to be reminded that you're still in control. You still have a plan. And we can find you in it. Open our minds and hearts to you, Father, because we love you in Jesus' name.